Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of You, Me, Empathy. My name is Known Wells. I am the creator of this show. I am the host. And uh, I am the editor and marketer and uh, all the other things. It's just me doing this podcast. And my guests, uh, which I will get to in just a moment, uh, the other thing I am is I am the founder of the Feely Human Collective, which is in a state of uh, transformation right now. Um, I am transitioning uh, Feely Human from, well, I'm, I'm, the shop is going away probably, uh, and more on that in just a second. But one of the big things that's coming for Feely Human and the community itself is I am launching a membership community in January. And uh, that's coming up very soon in just over a month or so. And uh, no, no exact date. I'm thinking mid January, but I'm very excited about it. Um, I'm, I hope you're excited too. The best way to sort of keep in touch and learn more about that as, as, as it, as I build it, uh, is to sign up for the newsletter. And you can do that feelyhuman.co. Just click the banner at the top of the page there. The other thing I wanted to mention is that I am also not a therapist. I am not a mental health professional. I am a silly boy. I like trees. Um, I I like dirt. I don't even like taking showers uh, sometimes. So that's the level of professionalism you're getting from me. Um, so if you need mental health support, please seek uh, the support of a professional. Um, Crisis text line is a great resource. Mental Health of America, n- your local NAMI chapter, etc. I love you. Uh, so this episode is episode 240 with my guest Liz Kleinrock. Liz is an educator, a facilitator, a an author, and uh, in this episode we talk about we talk a lot about bias. We talk about why bias is one of the things we humans all have in common. We talk about why unlearning is often harder than learning and what anti-bias and anti-racist work looks like in the classroom. Uh, I really loved this conversation. I love all of the conversations. This one was special. I, I, I've been a big fan of Liz and uh, her work for a long time. She has a book called Start Here, Start Now. Uh, that, is, that is wonderful. She's on uh, Instagram that I think you should follow at Teach and Transform. And uh, I have a whining dog in the background. I'm just going to ignore. So hopefully you don't hear that. In addition to talking about bias, we also talk about the impact we have on each other as humans. We talk about the teaching and transforming. Um, by that, I mean the learning we do and then the actions that we take after our learning. What is the action we take? And then we wrap up the episode talking about horror movies. Um, I am a fan of horror movies. Liz is also a fan. We like to be scared and we talk about some of our, some of our faves uh, and recent faves in the horror genre. So that's the episode. Um, I hope you love it. I loved it. Last thing I'll say is uh, just a few days left of, I mentioned before that the shop is probably coming to a close, the Feely Human Shop. And so for the next, uh, till the end of November, so you have a couple of days, the entire shop is 75% off. And if you go to feelyhuman.co slash shop and use the code end of year 2022, 
uh, you get 75% off. There are stickers I love, pins, t-shirts, uh, mugs, and uh, yeah, check it out at feelyhuman.co slash shop. My dog is now playing with a ball in the background. So this is this is the life of a podcaster, okay? This is the life of an independent podcaster like me. And uh, speaking of independence, um, the, the best way to support me and the work that I do is to leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast, sign up for my newsletter, and hopefully join the membership community when it launches in January. Very excited about it. I hope you're excited too. And if you're not, that's cool too. I love you nonetheless. Any hoozles, let's get to the episode, shall we? Uh, this is episode 240 with the wonderful, enlightening Liz Kleinrock. Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights and the darks we face as humans trying to get by. Now, let me let me back that up because I actually recently, this is talk, I'm talking to Liz now, <laughs> recently redid my intro um, because I was doing the same one for the last almost five years. I'm going to re-rack it. There we go. <laughs> Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights, and the darks we face as humans trying to be human on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. You, Me, Empathy was created so that we can be witness to our collective humanity through the lens of empathy, vulnerability, and emotional curiosity. We aim to destigmatize mental health, lead fiercely with our hearts, feel our feelings without shame and judgment, and share our courageous stories so that others may feel less alone and more connected as feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a brave place designed to inspire the beauty in each of us because each of us, in all of our kaleidoscopic parts, makes up a magical whole that deserves to be seen. Today, I'm just so overwhelmingly honored to be here with anti-bias and anti-racist educator, author of Start Here, Start Now, a guide to anti-bias and anti-racist work in your school community, and horror film aficionado. It's Liz Kleinrock. Hello, Liz. Hi. Oh, Hi. I love that intro. Thank you. Oh my gosh. You're very welcome. I am, I mean, of course, very excited to talk to you about anti-bias and anti-racist work. Also very excited to talk to you about horror movies. Oh my God, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so we always kick off the show, Liz, with an emotional check-in. How are you feeling? Ooh, I am feeling better today than I have been for the past few days. I am recovering from COVID. Um, so last week was definitely not one of my favorites. I had not great symptoms and just went a little... 
up the wall having to stay inside. Um, mm. But I am doing a lot better now. Also, my partner had COVID, my parents had COVID. So there was, I think, just a lot of anxiety about people in my life, making sure that they were okay, but everyone is doing better. So therefore, mm. I'm doing better. Yes. There is this, there has been a, what I've noticed the last couple of years in terms of this global pandemic, in terms of this, this, this illness of COVID, this higher sense of, hopefully this higher sense of, I get this thing, it has an impact on others, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about sort of your experience with that and you know, I, I'd imagine like having COVID, thinking about the impact that has on my people, my community, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm I'm very lucky to be in an industry or field of care, of community care, education mm. through anti-bias and anti-racism work. Um, you know, there's no one that I work with who I consider, you know, just a professional acquaintance. Like these are people mm. who I constantly check in with. We celebrate, you know, life milestones. And um, it's not just about like, hey, we're doing this conference together or we're writing this paper together, something <laughs> like that. Um, and I think when we get together, there's always, you know, this this need to make sure that we're taking care of one another. We don't want to do anything to inconvenience anybody else, especially for folks like me who are classroom teachers, you have such limited free time and the summer is so precious. Mm. Um, you certainly don't want to be spending any of your vacation time stuck inside with COVID. Um, but I was also just coming from a wedding and the folks who are getting married, I think just put a lot of care into making sure folks were testing and um, not wanting you know, to risk or compromise anyone. And that unfortunately, that resulted in two people in the parties not being able to attend the wedding because they came down with it in the days before. But mm. everyone understood like this was something that we needed to do. Yeah. Um, so I have not encountered any real resistance from folks in my life Right, you know the the type that you see on like social media and the news. Where I'm like, I don't know where these people live, but I'm glad I'm glad they're not over here right now. <laughs> right, it's so interesting. Right, I I, I talk a lot about I, I lead a lot of like empathy workshops, and and one of the topics that we delve into is this idea around like how can we be more aware and mindful and 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 sticky around this idea of like when we show up in a in a room in a space like what are all of the ways all of the intricate nuanced ways that we have impact like and think of all of those ways like can we go down the line and think of all of those ways and i think what i've noticed is that we're maybe we're not taught or we're out of practice uh to sort of be curious about that type of nuanced thinking or or just thinking of like how we impact others in that type of way right because it is it is a nuance it is a thinking about a nuance right it's 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 this it's this awareness of the details that is hard right yeah, and, and thinking about all the parts that we don't see just like when we look at somebody yeah i don't know who yeah, yeah. folks have at home if they're you know living with a family member who might be immunocompromised if they're they themselves are immunocompromised if 
you know, mm. they have a child under the age of five. Like I know for so many of my friends with little kids, um, you know, the past two years have just been awful. Like they haven't been able to go anywhere. They're constantly nervous about their children getting sick or what they might be bringing home. And it does feel like our country kind of just forgot about these millions of people and families mm. with young ones um, who haven't been able to, you know, reclaim certain parts of their lives that people who are older have been able to do. Mm. And I guess maybe they're, you know, the the sort of utopian daydreamer in me wants, like, how do we bridge the gap there? Like, how do we, like, do we ask questions? Do we say, like, what do you need? Like, is it that? Like, because, like, you're right, we can't know. We don't, like, know what we don't see. So we don't know that they have a child at home who's immunocompromised. Like we don't know that, but how, how do we determine to determine that? Or is it about also, maybe it's both, maybe it's asking questions and it's also about the piece of imagination, right? Like imagination is an important part of empathy, right? Yeah. And, and understanding that like there's a wide sort of range of, places and 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 sort of uh, uh circumstances that people are living right and they're not they're not just the way i live mm-hmm. right <laughs> yeah i think people tend to just take the assumption that whatever they're going through or experiencing must then be shared by everybody else out yeah. there but that's really not how it works yeah yeah well what so you're what i love about so I, I cherish cherish you and the work that you do. Just let me Thank get that you. off <laughs> right off the bat. Um, and what I love about like, so your I believe your Instagram handle is Teach and Transform. And what I love about that as a framing device or as just the words together, I'm a like word nerd. I have a literature degree. Uh, is it's teaching and then it's doing. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, right. So I always think like when I think about like empathy and when I talk about empathy, it's like it's not about just the feeling. It's about what are we doing with that feeling? Right. So when you talk about like the work and learning about it, it's not just about learning. It's like, okay, what are we doing next? Yeah. Which is so like that, that is. That is the hard part, right? Like that is truly the hardest part and the most uncomfortable part. Yeah. I think being able to take information, like once you have learned, once you are done with like the consumption phase, like how do you actually translate that into action? Um, And I also think that along with learning, the unlearning is often Mm. just as hard, if not even harder than like learning new information. Um, The way that we have to like recondition ourselves all over. it takes yeah. a lot of energy and a lot of intention, but you know, I what can't some... really imagine. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry, I I interrupted. Um, I was curious. What are some ways that, as you've delved into this work, and you've you know, what I love about the way that you approach it is, you're teaching it, you're learning it, you're grappling with it, and you're like, I'm human, I'm fallible. You know, I'm messy. I'm, you know, I'm learning too with you, which I think is so important. Um, what have you 
had to un what have you have uh, what have you like grappled with in terms of unlearning what have you had to unlearn oh my god the process so, so much i mean i'm i'm definitely still in that process i will always be in that process yeah um which i think is also just such a gift um i think mm. for some folks it can feel really overwhelming but I mean, when you think about all of the information all the lived experiences out there we're incredibly limited and you know what you know and you know everything out there that you don't know <laughs> you can you can spend your entire life and then some not learning everything there is to know out there yeah um i like it because i think it's a nice reminder to always humble yourself um mm. That I think for some folks who might be striving towards perfectionism or have more of a mindset of wanting to check boxes or you know just cross off things on a list, it's probably going to be a little bit more uncomfortable for you. Um, but I try to live my life with a lot of humility and to recognize that I'm incredibly limited by my own lived experience and perspective. Mm. Um, I try to listen as much as possible to you know, gain new perspectives and expand my own lens through which I, you know, experience the world um, by listening to other people, um, like really, truly listening, not listening to respond or thinking about what I'm going to do with this information, but really just trying to sit with it first and foremost. And then when I work with my students, because I've taught in schools now for 13 years, um, have worked with kindergarten through sixth grade, um, and try to outwardly model that process as much as I can. Mm. Um, I talk to my students all the time about even things that I used to do a couple of years ago as a teacher that I have now unlearned because new information has been presented to me, realizing, oh, this practice actually wasn't as good as I thought it was. It might have actually upset or harmed people. Mm -hmm. um, and the best thing that I can do for accountability is be transparent and have those types of conversations and also seek feedback whenever possible. It doesn't matter if my students are 12 or if they're five years old. Like mm. if I'm here to really support and serve them, then they need to be part of that process too. Mm -hmm. Do you have a specific specific example of of that? Of my own unlearning? Oh yeah. gosh. I mean, I think a, a really big one is like I think how I have shifted in my views of behavior management or classroom management. I don't mm. even like using those phrases really that much anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, my friend Britt Hawthorne describes classroom environments as ecosystems. And I think that metaphor sits a lot better with me than this image of an adult running around trying to like keep kids in a certain place and to mm -hmm. you know manage everything that's happening in your classroom environment. Um, when I first started out teaching my very first year, um, I taught with a lot of teachers who had been in public schools for a really, really long time. And since I was brand new, I was like, well, if they were doing it, it's probably what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'll just take their lead. Um, a lot of them used color charts or like clip charts for student behavior where each kid like has a card or a couple of cards, a, a green, a yellow, and a red. And based on their behavior, a kid might be told, you know, you're talking too much, like go turn your card from green to yellow, or, you know, you did it again, go turn your card from yellow to red. I remember um, that. I remember yeah. getting a black card. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, which obviously in hindsight, terrible. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. You know, I'm 41. And you, you remember know. that, right? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, 
I also drew on the walls and that's why I got the black <laughs> card, but like black as bad, right? right? I mean, geez Louise. Right. So you have like the inherent anti-blackness yeah. in there. Yeah. Um, you have like this component of public shaming. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of us, like some, most kids, I think don't even remember what they did. They just remember that feeling of embarrassment and shame of having to, you know, walk to the front of the room, turn their car and go sit down and have to stare at it like the rest of the day. Right. Um, and I did that for the first year mm. that I was teaching. Um, I truly didn't know any better. Yeah. There aren't really classes that you take when you're in teacher um, education that, you know, teach you about classroom management. It's just one of those things that you learn as you go. Mm. Um, and now, like when I have those conversations with students, um, a lot of them have not had the experience of having to turn their color card, which is great. But some will remember like, oh, I remember in like my kindergarten class, like my teacher made me do that. And it was awful. And you know, mm. you're talking to a kid in sixth grade who like has these memories and they're they're still very, very vivid. Um, so that is certainly like one very big example, something that yeah. I, I no longer do. Wow. That's a big one. And and the kids, I'd imagine, you know, yeah, like that's pretty emotionally wrought experience having to go through that. And I wanna, you know, I think what's important here also is like you pointing out the fact that like the first year you did that, understanding that that's, you didn't know any better. Like that's, that's crucial here. Right. And especially a first year teacher, like you're jumping into a system that's like, I mean, talk about legacy, public school, like doing it forever. This is how we've done it forever. Like it's a huge system, legacy system that you're jumping into. Like, um, a lot of grace there toward yourself, I think, is warranted. Yeah. Oh, and I have a lot of examples like that. And yeah. I think it's also great to be able to share those types of stories with new teachers to remind folks, mm. you know, you don't have to have all the answers like right up front. You're going to be in this constant learning and unlearning process and, you know, just be kind to yourselves, mm. um, you know, give yourself some space to to make mistakes and to and to learn and to, you know, figure out what better really means and what that looks like. And, Mm. you know, in my case, if, you know, I think it can also be tough because my mistakes could have impacted the way that children feel about themselves growing up. When you realize you make a mistake, the importance of owning it and apologizing. I think we don't apologize to children nearly enough and something that we all need to get a little bit better at. Mm. That's so interesting. I've spoken before about how there's this, I feel like it's shifting. And I think what you're doing as a teacher is part of that shift. But I feel like there has been this cultural idea around like, okay, kids, they're younger, we're we're parents or we're adults, we're better, we're therefore better and they don't know any better and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I think that's problematic. Uh, right. Um, I'm curious. I would love to hear if you have any moments as a teacher the past 13 years of like where you've had, where you've thought about like, oh, this kiddo reminds me of me when I was a kid. I've had a lot of those kids. Um, <laughs> my mom saved all of my report cards, like 
kindergarten through 12th grade, saved all of them. And wow. I, I love favorite that. report card comment came from kindergarten or first grade. And my teacher wrote that, you know, Elizabeth is, you know, a lovely student, but she's like not the greatest listener. And when it's time for everyone to come together in like circle time or something like that, well, like Elizabeth is usually nowhere to be found. And usually she's like off sitting in a corner, like reading a book or talking to herself. <laughs> Those were the exact words. Um, love it. Love yeah. It. yeah. So usually when I when I find kids who are kind of marching to the beat of their own drum, those are the mm. kids that I, I tend to bond with best. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. So you've always, do you feel like you've always been that march to the beat of their, your own drummer type of person? I think internally, yes. Mm. I think I did my fair share of assimilating in lots of different ways, especially like middle school, high school, when you just want so desperately to fit in. Oh, yeah. Um, Survival, think, really. Yeah. yeah. Like when I look at my my high school friend group, and a lot of us are still very close, like we were definitely kind of like the weird group at mm. school, like all like really smart, like very high achieving. Um, a lot of us like led the you know school newspaper or headed up like different student clubs but like mm-hmm. we were a bunch of weirdos um and i kind of love that about us though yeah <laughs> definitely in adulthood we're still that kind of weird group uh-huh i love that i love that let's talk a little bit about what anti-bias work is so this this is this is an area that you teach about you've written a books about it um you talk a lot about it. And I think it's very important. I guess for the listeners of this podcast, the folks who are listening now, like help them understand just basic understanding of what can you define bias? Yeah. So when when I talk about anti-bias and anti-racism work, especially with kids, I know that those words like they drum up a lot of like big feelings from people, especially in our current climate around like anti-critical race theory and everything being billed as critical race theory when it really isn't. Sure. Um, I think if you were to Google bias, like you're gonna come up with dozens and dozens of like scientific studies that show like all the different types of biases that people have if we are predisposed towards favoritism or discrimination around certain people or communities or ideas. And I think one of the most important things to understand first is that bias is oddly like one of our common denominators as humans, Mm. that it doesn't matter what your identity is because we're all, you know, living in our collective society. We're exposed to so many different ideas. We're exposed to regular media and social media that we're all just collecting lots of different biases. And so it's not about someone being able to say, you know, I don't have a biased bone in my body. Like I'm not biased at all. Okay, cool. We all are. Yeah. But what's most important is what happens when we recognize our biases and what we can do to try to unlearn them, to push back and dismantle them. So we don't end up making social decisions or acting on our biases in ways that can end up hurting people. Right. And for young kids, this does not mean like gathering your class and saying like all of you are biased and you're bad people and like this is what we have to do about it. 
with younger children because they haven't had as much exposure to different things in the world is being really mindful and intentional of what you're exposing them to. Like, can we normalize understanding that like white is not the default? Mm-hmm. Understand that we can be really intentional about the books that we read children, what type of like movies and TV shows we watch with kids in our lives and like what mm-hmm. types of stories and narratives they're uh, they're learning about people who look like them and people who are different. I think it's actually a really beautiful thing. It's not something that has to be scary. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think the thing about what I think about bias is we live a life, we're living our lives and we pick up these things along the way. And some of these things sort of serve us and then become parts of our identity and they get ingrained in us and they inform how we value ourselves and see the world. Um, and, and those can be values. Those can be like positive influences on our lives. And if we're not conscious or if we're not bringing awareness to these things um, in, a, in a sort of active ongoing basis then uh, we're not bringing awareness to the fact that they, they could also be having having impact on others in negative ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is that the idea? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what I love about it is it's very similar to the the empathy stuff that I talk about, right? Because empathy is messy, right? It's really about getting comfortable with discomfort right it's about being still you were talking about like listening before and active listening you weren't maybe a great listener as a kindergartner but you are now which is beautiful um it's sitting and listening being present and learning and shedding and dismantling and bringing in new perspectives and ideas and understanding that what you know today may be gone tomorrow and that's beautiful and and it's also scary right because the things that you know today or the things that you've been carrying could be the armor and it could be your protector right um so when you when you frame this stuff how do you like how do you talk about these big ideas with kids like, how do you like bridge that gap? Because this is big stuff. Like, I talk to this, I talk about this stuff with like grown ass adults, and it's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think with kids, it is easiest and most effective to start with something really concrete that they have experience with. Yeah. Um, kids are kids. So they have experience in being kids. They know other kids. And so I often like to connect bias with stereotypes when I'm introducing it. Cause I think Mm. those are, there's some really concrete, very tangible things that children can get on board with. Sure. Um, We talk about bias towards teachers and stereotypes of teachers, um, Mm. things that they might have read in books or seen in, in TV shows and I ask them, you know, like, what are some stereotypes of teachers that are out there? And they're like, oh, well, teachers are all, they're old and they're mean. And, you know, they yell at kids and they stand at the front of the room and they like wag their finger at kids and just tell them not to do things. Um, 
oh my gosh, one of my kids this year was like, teachers wear cardigans and they're always cold. (laughs) Well, I feel very attacked now. Um, But they all had these like varying green ideas. Like they had a lot of things to volunteer. And then we talked about, okay, so like, are any of your teachers right now like that? Do you Mm -hmm. have any, you know, hundred year old teachers who are like screaming at children from the front of the classroom? And they're like, no, like, okay, well, then where did these ideas come from then? Mm. And if also these are the ideas that children are carrying around about teachers, how might that bias actually impact their ability to like form a relationship with their teacher or might impact the way that they interact with them? Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk about adult biases towards children. Like, well, what are biases you think adults have towards kids? And like, oh, adults think that we're we're loud and we're smelly and we don't listen to directions and things like that. And it's like, well. Does that apply to some children? Sure, but all children? Absolutely not. So what happens like if you are, you know, let's say you're at shopping at Target with your family and like maybe you and your sibling are, you know, just having some fun, like running around while your parents are shopping for something, and then an adult comes out of nowhere and, you know, yells at you, you mm-hmm. know, you're not doing anything wrong, but if they're carrying that bias, then they're gonna look at you and assume the worst, you know? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't feel very good. And so then we can start to talk about more things that like children themselves have experienced and how that feels and what can we do when we begin to notice that we, that there are certain ideas cropping up about certain types of people. Um, Cause I think some of the challenging part with both children and adults is that so much of the unlearning piece happens internally. Like there are, are these dialogues or monologues that happen in our heads. And if we notice that there are certain thought patterns coming up about certain types of people, what can we do when we actually begin to notice that? Like, how can we mm. redirect our own thoughts? So like, what can we tell ourselves differently? Yeah. Do you try to facilitate the, I mean, do you try to get some of that internal stuff external? Yeah, absolutely. I told my students this year, I was driving to work. Um, like it's just on my way to school. And I saw this guy when I was stopped at a red light, um, he was out jogging early in the morning And I noticed him because he was wearing jogging shorts, no shirt, but had on this like enormous hat, like a comically large hat. Um, And for a second, I was like, man, that that hat is hilarious. I almost want to like take a picture of it, like send it to my friend and be like, yo, look at this guy's hat. And then I can stop myself and think, you know what? I have no idea why this guy is wearing this hat. Maybe he has a disability and this is helping him with preventing like sensory overload. It helps mm-hmm. with his processing. Maybe it's just really hat. Maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe it's something that I have no idea about and it's really none of my business. Yeah. So before I go and make the snap judgment and take a picture and laugh about it with somebody else, I can catch myself mm-hmm. in that. I can remind myself of these things and I can go about my life and this person can go about their life. Yeah. What a good example. I always use the example of, cause it, it's like, it's a, it's like my, uh, it's like my one, ch- not my one challenge, but it's like the challenge example for me. It's like the guy with a huge truck and he has the, I don't know if you've seen it, but they're like plastic testicles that hang off the back <laughs> of his truck. <laughs> And, you know, he probably had, I'm making assumptions, right? I'm starting to make these assumptions and building the case, right? He has the blue lives matter, you know, sticker, right? And I'm, I'm building up my defenses, right? And so like, that is my, like, I'm starting to build, but like, 
I could soften, right? I could be curious. I could like, okay, there could be lots of reasons for this, right? You know, I don't have to like start screaming in my car. I don't have to be like, fuck you. Like this guy's against me. Like I don't need to do those things. Like that's not the work we're talking about. Um, yeah, it's important. So I love that. It's important. How How has it been in terms of the system you're in, public school, and sort of working against, with, and sort of like infiltrating, for lack of a better word, or like uh, inspiring others, other teachers within the space to also do this work? Um, it is kind of a mixed bag. I've worked in public school. This past year was my first year working at a private school, which was very different and interesting. Mm. Um, I think in every community, you know, there are, are people who are doing phenomenal work who really want to be pushing this type of education forward, who are really doing all they can to best serve their students and their communities. And I think the main thing that I see is people just trying to do the best that they can with what they're given, which is honestly not always very much. Mm. Um, it's really how can I try to do the most while still like contorting myself as I'm trying to navigate the system that's incredibly rigid. Um, you know, public schooling hasn't changed a whole lot since its creation, like not that many decades ago. Um, but it's tough when there are things that you can obviously do with the students in front of you, like the decisions that you can make within the realm of your own classroom space. But the second you want to go beyond your classroom, if it's to your school community as a whole, if it's your district or your state, um, you often find that there are a lot of barriers and there's a lot of roadblocks. Um, the levels of bureaucracy in public education can be mm. really disheartening sometimes, yeah. but I think they also can be everywhere too. They are everywhere. Uh, I've talking. I had a recent conversation with uh, Dr. Jennifer Mullen, who is a psychotherapist, and she's uh, at Decolonizing Therapy on Instagram. You know, she's trying to, you know, to kind of disrupt that system, right? And that's another space, right, where you're in it. You're trying to serve your clients, in your case, students. And you're also seeing that like you're you want to do better for it and you see the problems. And you also see that things need to change and you're burnt out. Right? You don't have the resources. My my partner Jessica is a community college English teacher. She also teaches at a men's prison. And she sees the same stuff, right? Um doesn't have the support, right? Doesn't have maybe the resources and it's, it's just a, feels like an uphill battle always. Yeah. It's exhausting. And then it, you're burned out hard. and you can't do anything to change the system because you're too tired. And it's this weird dissonance between this, what I feel is this external public valorizing of teachers we love teachers. Teachers are the best. So many mugs. I love teacher mugs, right? So many fucking mugs. I have so many mugs. You it's probably true. have so many fucking mugs. Sorry, my language, but I'm passionate about this. And then internally, teachers suck. Like internally, 
no support. Like right. same for nurses. Oh, we saw this for- so much throughout the pandemic. We love yeah. our public servants, but only to a certain point. Right. <laughs> when you no longer serve the use that we have designated for you, we don't like you anymore at all. What 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 do you make of that? It's not surprising, but it's still disappointing and it's still frustrating. Um, you know, I think so much of it goes back to capitalism that you know, as long as you are serving your own purpose in this system, then people are fine with you. And the second that you begin to push back against it, then they don't want to hear you anymore. Like teachers and nurses and mm. doctors went from being, you know, America's angels at the beginning of the pandemic. Like, oh my gosh, I'm not good at like caretaking for anybody. Like teachers do this every single day. Like my child is actually a pain in the neck. Like, oh my gosh, like we need to pay teachers more. And then within a month, like, oh, well, teachers don't want to go back to school because they don't want to get COVID. Um, stop paying them. Like they're now like the enemy of society. Like, oh, nurses are telling people to like wear masks and like get vaccinated. Oh, we don't want to hear that anymore. Un-American. It's unfortunate. It's scary, like how quickly it's it turned. So fickle. It's it makes me so sad and makes me want to cry thinking about it. Um and you're right. It is capitalism. It is, it is a more individualist mindset. I think we need to dismantle that to, to a more collective community-based care approach to things. Do you think we're like overall like doing better than we were? In what way? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I just like I. You're right. Like I, I, I say that, and then I like I think about where we're at, you know. And I'm a white cis man. I've got it great, and so, you know, black men are still getting gunned down in the streets, and Roe v. Wade is. I mean, it's just like it's still a living nightmare, and it's it's. I I I vacillate between wanting to just. You know, I struggle with, I, I mean, I struggle with like major, major depressive disorder. So I like, I, I struggle with suicide stuff. So I like, I, I'm like on that end. And then I'm like, I need to be useful in this fight. Um, so I, it just, it's a lot, it's overwhelming. Um, and then I have to remind myself, look, if you as a white cis man known are overwhelmed, consider others, right? Yeah, absolutely. We're all fighting stuff and it's a lot. I don't know if we're <laughs> we're getting better, we're getting worse. I think as a country, uh, we are just we're far more jaded for sure. Um mm. I think the abundance of information out there can be such a incredible gift and it can be such a burden at the same time too cuz I think like going back to the whole theme of this show, it's hard to be empathetic 24-7. And when you are being bombarded with awful news from literally every direction, like every moment, like you open your phone and it's like, here's 30 terrible things that just happened in the past hour. Um, I think for so many, and like I include myself in this, sometimes it's just easier to try to shut that off. Like I caring so much all the time is so exhausting and i have to remind myself you know like it's 
I don't have to be on all the time. I'm also not here to like save anybody. If right. I need to tap out for a little bit, then I need to, then like, that's fine. I, I need to be able to trust the people I'm in community with, where if I need to take a break, like everything is not going to fall apart overnight, yes, even though things do seem to kind of be falling apart overnight. <laughs> yes. Such a crucial point, Liz. Thank you for that. It's, we have to take breaks. Uh, we can't like, especially for you, uh, who is doing meaningful work in your community, like leading so fiercely with your heart and, 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 and like that work takes boundaries. Like that work takes rest and care. You have to, like, you can't do that all the time. Otherwise you are just going to burn the shit out and it's, it, and then you're not going to be useful. Yeah. Right. It's you like want to be airplane useful. mask. We yeah. talk about the airplane mask analogy a lot. Yep. Gotta, you mentioned that in your book. Yeah. Yeah. Care for yourself before you start trying to take care of other people. Darn tootin. Darn Easier tootin. said than done though. Always. 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 So I do want to mention, and, and it's hard, I know. Um, and then we'll, then we can talk about horror movies, which yes. is just joy, just pure joy. Um <laughs> So, you know, we're recording this in July of 2022, you know, uh, so whenever you're listening to this, there's probably, I mean, I say that in jest, but whenever you're listening to this listeners, there was a recent shooting, which is horrifying to say, but there was because here in the United States of America, we have horrible gun laws. And in my opinion, burn all the guns just in effigy just like funeral pyre pyre burn them to the fucking ground yes that's including yours mother um so <laughs> i i saw you post on instagram about talk you know someone a, a student coming to you and talking about this can you talk about that a little bit sure um one of my former students who is now ending her time in middle school, um, reached out through social media and you know, just wanted to check in and then asked if I had seen the news and you know, started talking about just being nervous if something like that could happen at her school and asked if like if I thought that's a possibility. And I never want to lie to a student. I never want to lie to anybody. And not being able to tell a child who I love and care about very dearly, you know, everything's going to be fine. Nothing like that's ever going to happen. That's not something that you need to worry about. But I could never say that in good faith because I have no way of knowing that yeah. it could happen tomorrow, you know? Um, and it's unfortunate that that's just the reality that every teacher in this country, every parent or caregiver in this country has to live through every single day. I think we try the cognitive distance thing. We we tell each other like, you know, we're taking security measures that wouldn't happen here, but we have we have no way of knowing that. Um and it it sucks. It sucks just to not be able to reassure and protect children the way that we are supposed to, the way that we have the we do have the ability and potential to do so. But I think the infuriating thing is that we choose to not when we when we could that's it we choose to not 
And it's a choice to maintain power over the lives of children. Simple. Yeah. Which is devastating. Yeah. I I don't understand it. It's anti-human. It's, uh, yeah. Boy, oh boy. Um, well, speaking of horror shows, let's talk about horror movies. <laughs> that was the best transition ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is your first experience with the horror genre, Liz oh, Kleinrock? Like, utter terror. I did not love horror movies growing up. I was very scared of them. I vividly remember being taken by my parents to see the movie Mars Attacks. It's like a Tim Burton oh, yeah, comedy. Yeah, yeah. Um, fourth grade me found nothing funny about that movie. I was so scared. I think it was around the time where they do some sort of like head swap between like Sarah Jessica Parker and her chihuahua. And that... <laughs> sent me like out of the theater. Um, My mother had to take me home early from the movie and my dad stayed in the theater and finished the movie. He's Um, like, I got to, I'm invested. (laughs) I'm invested in this attack. I got to see what these Martians are up to. Yep. Um, And then for like the next year of my life, I checked behind my door in my closet under my bed for aliens. And Mm -hmm. I was, I was so scared. And then in ninth grade, one of my really good friends started at my school and we started a fun little tradition where we would go to Blockbuster on the weekends. We both were really scared of horror movies, but wanted to get over it. So we were just like, okay, well, we're just going to expose ourselves a lot and we'll just desensitize ourselves. Uh-huh. Um, and so we would do like horror double features. We'd like go pick up like Chinese food and would just like go at it for a couple of hours on the weekends. Um, and I think in a weird way it worked because it's something that I, I've really enjoyed. I really like being scared. I think it's really fun. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of people who do not understand that at all. I often will say like horror movies are relaxing for me because if I'm like very engrossed in a horror movie, I can't be stressed out about all the crap going on in the world. I'm not thinking about the Supreme court. Like, that's a great I'm telling, point. I'm yelling at someone on screen, like, don't open that door. Don't go in that basement. <laughs> um, it's just really fun. And I really enjoy, like, Eli Roth did a series called History of Horror. Um, uh-huh. And he interviews lots of different horror writers and directors and actors from famous, like, horror movies. And talks a lot about, like, social commentary and, like, what horror movies reflect in society. And I think it's just really fascinating. Um, it's just a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. And I, I love the horror genre because, I mean, as, as like a movie nerd. So I grew up, um, I don't know how old you are, but I grew up with, yeah, uh, we went to a little independent, uh, movie shop called Cinema Magic growing up before Blockbuster. Yeah. We didn't have cable or anything, but we had this, we had this VCR and we would just rent movies and movies were just like everything. They were like my escape and stuff. And, uh, yeah. And then horror came out. And I remember just like being fascinated by all the horror genre covers, you know, at the movie, at the movie shop, you know, oh, yeah. um, it was the best, you know, all those 80, all those like just the eighties covers of those horror movies, like were the so fascinating and, and visceral, you know, I remember seeing like ghoulies, you know, and you know, all that stuff. Um, 
But yeah, I what I love it as like a film nerd is that horror as a genre, you know, you think of like all the like movie greats like Spielberg and Jim Cameron and, you know, like, I don't know, the, so many others. I mean, obviously, I just named two white dudes, but uh, so many of our like great filmmakers today, like started in horror because it's like it's you can start very inexpensively right mm -hmm. like you can make a horror pic picture for like relatively nothing and it could be effective like if you have like a solid story and you know it's what like a paranormal that, activity yeah that was exactly like a super cheap budget and they for made sure. like millions of dollars yeah which is exciting that that feels like accessible to me that feels cool so that's what i love about it so what is like what is a recent favorite couple of recent favorite horror movies and then maybe some all-time favorites oh okay um so at home with covid this, this past week i watched a lot of things <laughs> um i really love the netflix show kingdom um if you oh, haven't, seen, I haven't that, seen that it's korean it's zombies and it's set in like medieval korea oh. so like the sets and the costumes are really beautiful there's a lot of like sword and like bow and arrow zombie slang not like guns or anything that um, sounds so amazing if you like a, a good period piece and you like zombies highly recommend that uh, okay um another korean one i just watched is called gonjiam it's like the haunted asylum it's like found footage type of a group of people who are trying to make a like a haunted house tv show like is this location really haunted uh -huh. and like spoiler alert it's really haunted <laughs> um but it's just really well done yeah um and then i saw one a couple of months ago oh god i'm gonna google it right now hold on yeah. i want to say it's called the omen but it's not called the omen because uh, i know that movie yeah uh, let's see Classic. Uh, it's called The Vigil. There we go. Okay. The so The Vigil is a Jewish horror movie, and I'm also Jewish. So that was really, really exciting. Um, looking at the ritual like around death to like not leave the body like by itself, lest something mm. happen to it. And then shocking, like while this one man is looking over the body, something happens. Um, mm -hmm. Very creepy. Mm -hmm. But I really mm -hmm. liked that one too. All right. And what about some all time faves? Um, honestly, I think anything that James Wan has done, directed, mm. written, yeah, he's done I some think, good stuff. Yeah, and like those are, you know, actually more recent, but like I think the Insidious movies, like the whole conjuring universe that he's created. I know like the Annabelle ones are definitely a little campy, but I thought the prequel was actually pretty decent. Um I love that a lot of the plot in his movies is not something that is it's not like super over the top, um, mm -hmm. but in terms of editing and sounds and cinematography, they're just, they're very effective. And I really mm -hmm. appreciate that. I think probably one of my all time favorite horror movies is like the original alien, oh, so which good. I rewatched not long ago, but it's, oh a God, it's so good. It's so, so good. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. It's a perfect movie. Yeah. 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 I agree. Have what you seen the, you? have you seen the wailing? Yes, I really uh, liked the wailing. I mean, maybe that's less horror and more just kind of like thriller or something. But yeah, uh, me, Alien is up there for sure. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is up there. 
I do like Mike Flanagan. Uh, he did um, Oculus. Mm-hmm. Oh, Oculus was really good. Oculus. Um, the Descent is, would definitely be on my list. I like that one too. I mean, I think they could have left the monsters out of The Descent and it still would have been really still pretty scary. scary. <laughs> yeah, that was very effective. Um, I mean, The Shining is an all-time classic for sure. Uh, what else? Like, what is re- like? It Follows was like a... I you liked know, good that one a lot. Recent one that was pretty good. I'm trying to think. Like, did you see Crawl? It came out a few years ago. Mm-mm. About it. It was kind of. It's kind of like a monster movie, and it's about this girl who gets. She's like in Florida, and there's like a hurricane. And she gets trapped in her house with some big alligators. It's very ridiculous, but it's very effective. Alexander Aha who did Piranha 3D uh, and has done some other campy horror stuff. It's good. It's good. I'll check it out. Yeah, it's worth watching. Um, But yeah, I Jessica, my partner, doesn't really love horror, um, so I tend to watch them by myself. And I don't know. It makes me feel fun, and I like being scared, too. So Yeah, I'm lucky my partner likes them. Mm, you are you are lucky but i <laughs> also, actually most of my best friends like them too so i've always had a group of nice. people to watch with yeah. it, it's the best to watch it with a group of friends i did convince jessica to go see black phone with me uh which Is it good uh we're gonna go see it this weekend okay. uh because i heard it's more thriller less horror okay so we'll see I'll i've heard know. good it got good reviews yeah yeah I've ethan hulk's been in some good scary movies he has yeah. What was the one? He was in the first Purge. Yeah. Oh, I and then Sinister. He was in Sinister. Sinister. Yep. Yeah. That's right. That was also yep. pretty decent too. Yeah. Yeah. There was actually one called The Children that I thought was really funny. Like the kids get infected and they start killing all the adults. That one's not bad. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, that was fun. I love talking horror movies. Um. Well, uh, let's let's transition out of this space <laughs> and uh, talk about empathy heroes. We always talk mm. about empathy heroes at the end. So anyone in our lives who's empathetic or characters from stories or movies mm. even. So I will go first to give you a moment to think about yours. My empathy hero this week is someone, uh, a friend who I met maybe about a year ago online. And I'm actually going to drive down. She actually lives in Austin, but she's visiting San Diego. And I'm driving down to San Diego today to visit her, which I'm very excited. Her name's Jill Felska. And she recently had me on her podcast talking about, she has a podcast about uh, workplace culture. And I was on her podcast recently talking about like what empathy in the workplace looks like. And I don't know, it was just a really fun, fascinating conversation. And she was a very gracious and empathetic host. And I'm just really grateful for her friendship. Um, It's maybe difficult finding friends as adults. Um, It is. It is. It is, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm grateful for my new friend, Jill Felska. And if you want to listen to her podcast, it's called Want to Work There. It's great. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Mm. The two people that come to mind are my best friend. Uh, her name is Meg. Um, I think she is probably one of the most considerate people I have ever met in my entire life. Uh, she's the one who 
just got married out in LA and I got to give the toast at her at the wedding. Oh. Pretty much open up talking about how though we worked together for I think two years before we became like best friends. I thought she was like so full of shit for two years because she was so nice. I was like, why is she always asking me like how I'm doing and stuff? Like, who is this person? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But she's actually just like the most wonderful, empathetic person. She works with students with disabilities. So, you know, she is a just heart of gold human. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then my dad, I will never forget when I was younger um, we must've been like out and about and I think like an ambulance or a fire truck went by and it was super, super loud. And I covered my ears and I was like complaining about how loud it was. And my dad just said, you know, like when you hear an ambulance go by, you should really be thinking about, are they going to make it to where they're going on time? Like you should be mm-hmm. hoping that they make it to whoever they need to go help. And I was like, Oh gosh. <laughs> um, but that's just very much always stayed with me. Oh my goodness. That's beautiful. I got, I got goosebumps thinking about that. That's, that's lovely. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your dad who also had to stay for that Tim Burton picture. Just had to just obsessed. He did. I don't know if he thought it was worth it. I'll have to ask him. (laughs) Yeah. You'll have to ask him. Yeah. (laughs) Let me know what he says. (laughs) Uh, Well, Liz, uh, this has been a joy. Um, where where can the listeners uh, connect with you? Obviously, learn more about the beautiful work you're doing in the world. Um, well, I am by far the most active on Instagram. My handle is at Teach and Transform. Um, not really on Twitter anymore. I think Twitter is kind of like the opposite of empathy culture. Um, so I don't really like spending time there. Good for um, you. I have a website, uh, also teachandtransform.org and a Patreon um, that's mainly used by educators, caregivers, um, just folks who require or want more like individualized support, uh, resources, things like that. So I do a lot of sharing on there as well. Um, but yeah, give me a follow and hit me up. Tell me where you know me from though. That's always really helpful. <laughs> yes. And, and Go read her book, uh, which is called Start Here, Start Now, A Guide to Anti-Bias and Anti-Racist Work in Your School Community, uh, and uh, watch her TED Talk, uh, which I believe is called, I have it here somewhere, How to, Ta- How to Teach Kids to Talk About Taboo Topics. It's great. Oh, thank so you. So go check, go check that out, listeners. And all of those links will be in the show notes at feelyhuman.co. Liz Kleinrock, you're uh, a gem of a human. Thank you for being a part of this this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy. 